Hey guys, don't forget, this week is the week for our interview episode with Pastor Patrick Jimenez, my father, and the most influential man to ever come into my life, and what a big impact he's had on me. And so we were able to sit down, have a wonderful episode, looking forward to great, great content, talking about how to be the best spouse to a to a spouse that is going through a physical trial, um, talked about how to make it as a Christian in the military, and uh, many, many other topics we talked about. Looking forward to that episode, of course, will be released this week on Friday. November 20th. You can listen to it then, but today, here's our episode. And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. It's a beautiful, bright, sunny Thursday morning, at least where I'm at. How about where you are? And so, boy, what a great day it is to be here today. Feeling good outside for Florida, and I'm enjoying this time. So Thursday morning, and uh, hey, it's great where I am. I don't know about you. We have listeners from nine different countries as uh, the date of this recording when I recorded this episode. Nine different countries um, listening And, of course, USA is the largest listening base of those, but we've got some from France, some from Mexico, some from Italy, some from Canada, some from Singapore, some from the Philippines, some from Germany, um, Japan. Um, I don't know how many that was, and if I missed you, I'm so sorry. Um, I just, you're so great, I didn't want to mention your country's name. That's just how great you are. And so, um, but we have nine different countries. And that's phenomenal. And so thank you for listening. And so I don't know what the weather's like for you. Um, Of course, I'm here in northern Florida, just about, oh, I'd say about an hour south, maybe a little bit more, but about an hour south of the Georgia border and uh, maybe a little less, actually. And um, but love where I live. If I could change something about Florida and the area that I live in. I would change to where we actually have all four seasons. And I don't know about you, I enjoy the different seasons. I enjoy very definitive seasons. And so when we traveled across the United States, I loved being able to go into the autumn time period, the fall time period, and being able to see the leaf changes. I love seeing the mountains have a natural fireworks display. I mean, you got the yellows and the reds and the oranges and the brown and all the great colors of fall and I just love being able to see that and then I loved the the definitive seasons you know you have a clear um, fall autumn time period you have a clear winter time period and then it turns into spring uh, the trees are starting to get their leaves back flowers are coming back out birds are starting to sing again and then you've got that summer and um, one thing I like about those states you know, more a little bit more north, northern in the mountains and things of that sort. Typically, they've got a little bit less of a summertime period. Um, Florida, not so definitive in our seasons. Um, typically, cold weather may start, possibly, maybe, hopefully. It'll start in early December, and uh, but it'll last maybe, maybe till the beginning of March. 
and the rest of it is pretty much summer. And that's about it. We just have a long, long summer here in Florida. We do have a little bit of leaves changing, and um, it comes later in the year, um, more towards Thanksgiving, time period we're in now, of course, and uh, moving forward to Christmas. And we so we do have a few trees that change colors, like two, and uh, and they get, you know, maybe red, possibly. Um, a lot of them turn brown. They're dead. So we have, we have a little bit of leaf changing here. And this, so if I had to pick anything to change about where I live, I'd, I'd want it to be definitive seasons. And I'd want snow. Many of you are crying out. Some of, I have many listeners from my area. And I'm um, surely you're saying, no, we don't want snow. That's why we live here. We don't like snow. And I understand, hey, I'm still 24, and I'm basically still a kid in an adult's body. And um, I love I love snow. I mean, there's nothing better. There's nothing better than snow. And, you know, you're probably thinking, there's a lot of things better than snow. And I'm like, no, snow is great. And, yes, I would still be out there with um, with my children. I'd be out there building tunnels and snowmen and having snowball fights and hitting my wife with a snowball while she's not looking. Snow is phenomenal. And uh, so you need to enjoy snow a little bit more. But that's what I would change. I don't know what you would change about your area, but I would change the seasons a little bit more. And, uh, but you know what? I still love the seasons here, kind of. And, um, but I love the holiday seasons. And so I really do. I enjoy the holiday time, especially that time period from Thanksgiving Day moving forward to Christmas. Uh, that's my favorite time period all year. It just seems that people in general, maybe it's just me, maybe it's because we live more in the South, people are more friendly in general. Um, and you say, you can't say that, I hey, I've traveled up north, I've traveled down south, I've traveled out west, I've traveled as far east as you can go. I can firmly say that the people living in the south are in general, in general, okay, in general, typically, more often than not, are a little bit more friendly than those in other areas of the country. It's just we still have that, that spirit where we love God and country, and... Um, where I was going with that, I have no idea, and I'm starting to sound a little bit like my father. And don't tell him I said that, but, you know, we'll, he'll start something and then not finish. And, uh, oh, I mean, I guess that has, oh, I have that in my genetics. Oh, no, what am I going to do? How is this podcast going to continue? And But anyway, oh, that's what I was going to say. That in general, during, uh, you know, November and moving forward to Christmas, people are just happy. They're just joyful. There's just in general a joyful spirit. And granted, you got a couple Scrooges running around who are too worried about work and money and how busy it is and how they can't get to the store on time and all that stuff. But in general, I love it. I think it's great. And uh, so looking forward to that time period as we move forward. Now, not to completely avoid our topic for today, we have been talking about Baptist history on Thursdays since the beginning of the podcast, and I hope it's something that you've been enjoying, something that you have been really just excited about. Um, I'll be honest with you, in the rankings as far as podcasts, Thursdays isn't our most popular day. Not everybody's interested in it, and I, hey, I completely understand that. Not everybody is going to be interested in history, um, but it's picking up. There are a lot more listeners than what we started with, who are listening to the Thursday episodes. And so I hope you're enjoying it. I hope it's in-depth for you. What I wanted to avoid is I wanted to be too in-depth um, to where, like, all we talked about was, like, 
a month at a time of Baptist history. I wanted us to be able to actually cover some ground. And so already having some thoughts on what we're going to do when we're finished with Baptist history on Thursdays. I'm not going to share that with you. You're going to have to just sit on the edge of your seat and wait for that. But we've been talking about Baptist history in the New World. Baptist history in the New World, how appropriate as we move forward to Thanksgiving. We've been talking about Baptists in the New World, and I'm not going to review. As I've said many times, I'm not going to review everything we've talked about. You can go back and you can listen to Baptists in the New World. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember what lesson we're on exactly, but on the end of the on the end of the episode title, what I've started doing for Baptists in the New World, I've started adding a separate title, so it's like Baptist History Lesson Number Da-Da-Da, and then Baptist in the New World, uh, Baptist Da-Da-Da. And uh, so you can go there. It can maybe help define things a little bit more for you. And uh, But Baptist in the New World, have they had religious freedom? No, not truly. Not truly. Government religion is what they set up, and so, uh, no, they didn't have true religious freedom. We talked about Roger Williams, talked about John Clark, and so we left off last week with um, Roger Williams, he had gone to England for a little while to secure a charter. He's come back. He's now in Providence Plantation, Rhode Island, um, helping to secure religious liberty. You got John Clark um, on Newport Island with the two colonies of Portsmouth and Newport and um, working on religious liberty as well. He's really, as much as R- Roger Williams was working on religious liberty, John Clark was working on growing his Baptist churches and uh, doing a phenomenal job, by the way, in Newport during this time period. And we talked about how the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Boston, the Massachusetts courts were passing laws truly, truly just trying to annihilate Baptists within the colonies. If you don't believe me, we talked about a law last week, and you can go back and listen to it, September 9th, 1646, where they basically tried to abolish um, Baptists in general. And um, so they also tried to abolish religious freedom. They put religious freedom in these terms. They said, any carnal liberty under deceitful color of liberty of conscience. And they said, it's just a carnal liberty that you're claiming, and you try to put it under a deceitful flag of liberty of conscience, and that's not what it is. And so um, they were against that. They really were. We talked about last week, there was a man who would arrive in Boston, 1639, and he arrived with his wife Elizabeth, his son Jonathan, and they had a little girl on the way. And so this man, as I said, you're not going to want to miss him. In my opinion, up to this point, we've heard a lot of compelling stories. You talk about uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer, you talk about John Wycliffe, you talk about Michael Sattler, uh, Minnow Simons, or Simmons. I really don't know how you pronounce that now that I'm thinking about that. And uh, But either way, Minnow, Brother Minnow, and um, not Minnow, like the little fish, Minnow, M-E-N-N-O. And uh, so great stories we've heard, but up to this point... Up to this point, I think that this man's story is the one you will enjoy the most um, because he had such an impact. In all of my studying of Baptist history, this man is within my top five of my favorite Baptist history, we'll call them characters. Um, He's been my top five in favorite studying. Um, He's probably number three, maybe number four. I doubt number five, but he's definitely in the top number five. Phenomenal man of God. So let's talk about him. His name, you've heard his wife's name, his son's name. They have a little daughter on the way. His name was Obadiah Holmes. Obadiah Holmes, and he landed in Boston in 1639. 
And so when he landed in Boston, everything seemed peaceful on the streets, but literally in the streets they walked, people were hung for their disagreements with the state church. They were abolished, They not abolished, they were banished, kind of the same thing, I'd guess. They were banished from the colonies, they were whipped, they were beaten in the same streets that everything seemed peaceful, because remember, John Clark is gone, Roger Williams is gone, the Hutchinson family is gone, there's still some Baptists here and there, but not as outspoken as John Clark, not as outspoken as Roger Williams. And so, Obadiah Holmes arrives there, he's an Englishman, and so he moved to Salem, he moved to Salem, and he purchased a tract of land there to start the first glass factory in the New World. That was what he was by trade. He was a glassman by trade. And so he wanted to start the very first glass factory in the New World. He hired for this glass factory. He moved to Salem. Um, he hired a man by the name of Lawrence Southworth. Lawrence Southworth. And uh, he had some Quaker beliefs, but in reality... Both men considered themselves to be what you would call nonconformists. Nonconformists. They believed, here's what a nonconformist believed, they believed in God and church, but they didn't necessarily hold to any denominational, um, denomination rather, or the state church. They didn't hold to those, but they believed in God. They believed in church. They just didn't know where they stood on the denominational issue. In essence, here's what they did. They ignored the law of the state-run church, and they did their own thing. They began to study the Bible together. They, um, God just began to work on their hearts, especially the heart of Obadiah Holmes. Of course, being nonconformists, they were violating the law of the land at that time. And so the law did eventually catch up with Southworth and Holmes, and they fined Obadiah Holmes heavily, heavily. They fined him so heavily that he could not pay the fines. That's how heavy they fined him. He couldn't pay them, and the government took his children and put them up on the block to be sold as slaves to cover his debt. Now, he wasn't a Baptist at this time, okay? But here's what I'm going to say to you. I don't care what denomination you are. There needs to be religious liberty. Well, thank, thank the Lord at this point in time, we have it. We're starting to lose it in America. But thankfully, we still have it up to a point at this time. But um, there needs to be religious liberty. If, they're gonna, if the new world is going to talk about obeying the laws of God, how, how dare they, just because of somebody's religious beliefs, they take your children... They fine you because you don't adhere to the government church. They take your children and they put them up on the slave block as, um, as slaves. This is in Africa. This is in England. This is the Massachusetts Bay Colony. This is Boston, where so many of our um, Americans live, where so many um, have come from, where a lot of our politicians come from. Maybe they know this story a little too well, and um, maybe they're taking it a little literally, and uh, like they're trying to repeat it. But anyway, um, this just a little political statement there. And so this is the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So they were put up to be sold to pay the debt. By God's grace, a slave trader bought them, but as he was about to put them on the ship, and I'm not saying by God's grace a slave trader bought them, by God's grace something happened after he bought them. As he went to put them on the ship, the kids were crying, as you can imagine. I mean, I would be crying. Um, the kids were crying so relentlessly for their parents. He couldn't find it in his heart. Something just ripped his heart out, and so he took them, 
return them to the parents, of course, covering the fines himself, basically. And with the fines paid, the Holmes family decided to get out of there, wouldn't you? And so they left the areas of Boston and Salem, and so he and his family moved to Seekonk. Seekonk. And so behind the curtain, God is moving. And the Holy Spirit was moving things along for his cause, for his purposes. In the mid-1640s, people began to migrate heavily from England and the Massachusetts area of Boston. And um, they began to move. And the Massachusetts area, by the way, compassed the town of Rehoboth and Seekonk. It was still in the jurisdiction of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but it was really basically on the very edge, very edge. And so when people began to come from England, they began moving to Rehoboth and Seekonk. And this increased the township of these areas um, to 300 in population, which was incredibly large for that time period. So here's Obadiah Holmes, moves to Seekonk, and on the very edge of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, he's now closer to Rhode Island than he is to Boston. And so south of Seekonk, I want you to turn back south, and John Clark and his church in Newport Island are doing very well doing very well, but they received a, a breath of fresh air, a reinvigoration, reinvigoration when the arrival of a Baptist named Mark Luker from London. He arrived. He was a soul winner. He was zealous for the lost. Would that be said of you? Could it be said of you in the halls of history that you were a soul winner? What would be said about you? Mark Luker, he was a soul winner. He was zealous for reaching the lost. He, with John Clark, spearheaded a preaching campaign they decided to go out into surrounding areas and preach the gospel, to hold revivals, to hold campaigns. And the first place they went was, well, where do you think they went? God always has a way of working behind the scenes. Where do you think they went? That's right. They went to Seekonk and Rehoboth. And there at Seekonk, Obadiah Holmes was struggling. He was having issues with the state-run church again. He began to fall in bad favor with the government churches because he was a nonconformist. But this wasn't the real issue. The real issue was that Holmes was struggling with God gripping his heart and questions swirling in his mind of the truth. Unsure of what to do or what the truth was, he decided, well, maybe, maybe the tugging at his heart was because he needed to establish a church, and so he established a separate church, separating from the Congregationalists. Now, remember, Congregationalists were separatists. They were from out of the Church of England, uh, out of the Anglican Church. They were separatists. They separated from that church. They were the Congregationalists. But now Obadiah Holmes is separating from the Congregationalist Church, so you kind of have like a... a, a a separatist, separatist church. And so he just, he didn't know what to do. So he thought, well, maybe the tugging at my heart is just to start a church. And so he started one. And so this was a brash. This was a hated move by the government. In fact, it gave him the reputation as, quote, a rogue and rascal. And so when Clark and Luker arrived preaching the gospel of truth, Holmes's heart was ripe. For the harvest. In the revival of Seekonk, Holmes got saved and was baptized by John Clark in early 1649. Isn't that incredible? Watching God move behind the scenes, moving everything just as he would have it to be. You know, sometimes bad things will come. 
Do you think having your children put up on the slave trade block would be a bad thing? I think it'd be more than bad. I think it'd be whatever word you can think of, terrible, excruciatingly painful, um, would, however you want to term it. I think it'd be horrible. It'd be a nightmare. But did you know God is working behind the scenes? Because without that happening, he would have never moved to Seekonk. Without moving to Seekonk, he would have never gotten saved. And without getting saved, God would never be able to use him. So sometimes bad things come in the way, but God is working. Just stay faithful. Just hold on. Just hold on. 1649, got saved and baptized. Hearing of this great revival, great revival and events going on in Seekonk and Rehoboth. I mean, people were getting saved like crazy. Roger Williams sat down at his desk. And he penned this letter to Governor Winthrop of Boston. And you remember Governor Winthrop was one who had watched the whipping of Thomas Painter for his Baptist beliefs. And here was what Roger Williams um, wrote, just kind of stirring up the fire almost. He said, quote, At Seekonk, a great many have lately concurred with Mr. John Clark and, Pro- and our Providence men about the point of a new baptism in the manner of dipping. And Mr. John Clark hath been there lately, and Mr. Luker, and hath dipped them. I believe their practice comes nearer to the first practice of our great founder Jesus Christ than any other practices of religion do. Just kind of poking an angry bear, you know what I mean? And so the issue of Holmes having started a separate church still faced him. Got saved, got baptized as a Baptist, but he was still facing this issue. He had started a separatist, separatist church. And so he and, a, he and a band of families that had joined together decided that maybe it was best for them to leave the Massachusetts Bay Colony altogether. So they loaded up in their wagon or whatever they had. Maybe they walked. And so they got ready to go when they left, and they went to Newport, which became known during this time period um, as the sewer of New England because of all the Baptists. And so one of these men, his name is John Hazel. He's earned the nickname as Loyal John Hazel by some authors in history. Loyal John Hazel moved as well. He stayed close to the man he considered a great friend and pastor, Obadiah Holmes. And so he stayed faithful with Obadiah Holmes. He stayed loyal. And so he was one of those who left and went to Newport as well. Well, Obadiah, he grew by leaps and bounds. He became the really the assistant pastor to John Clark. He eventually would become his successor in the pastorate. And so God was just doing a work. God was doing a work. While traveling in 1651, Clark, Holmes, and two other men stayed with an aged man in Boston who had gotten saved. He asked for them to come give him a visit, and so they said yes. They wouldn't deny a brother a visit who, really, it was looking like his health wasn't doing too well. And so they traveled to Boston, 1651, Clark, Holmes, and two other men. Sunday came along, and as any good Baptist would, they decided, well, let's go ahead and have church. Let's preach. They had a small congregation of saved Baptists there, a, a called-out assembly, and so they met in the name of this in, the, in this man's home, and Clark was preaching to the small crowd. He started preaching. Things were going well when the door flung open. Two constables came in. They arrested Clark. They arrested Holmes. They arrested the other two men, John Crandall and loyal John Hazel. They arrested them because they were preaching. 
They were placed in prison. John Clark records this of their trial, and I quote from him. He said, None were able to turn to the law of God or of man by which we were condemned. At length, the governor, John Winthrop, stepped up and told us we had denied infant baptism, and being somewhat transported, overzealous, the governor told me I deserve death and said he would not have such trash brought into their jurisdiction. Moreover, he said, you go up and down and secretly insinuate into those who are weak, but you cannot maintain it before our ministers. You may try and dispute with them. When the governor suggested that, John Clark immediately seized upon it. So the governor, the governor looked at him and said, I won't have you bunch of, he called him trash. He said, I won't have this trash brought into the jurisdiction. He said, you go up and down and you secretly talk to people here. You secretly talk to them there. But if you were to debate our governor ministers, if you were to debate them, you couldn't hold a candle to them. Well, when the governor suggested that, John Clark, he just seized up on it. He said, quote, I would be happy to debate with the ministers of Boston appointed by the court regarding the revelation of the truth of the word of God. And the court was glad to please them as well. But what you'll find is the ministers of Boston refused. There wasn't a man in the pulpit in the entire area that would dare stand up and speak with Dr. John Clark regarding the Word of God. So the debate, the discussion, it was never held. Nobody would get up and debate him. You say, why? John Clark was a scholar of his day. He was a, a lawyer, he was studied in doctor, and he was studied, studied as a theology. All three, predominantly a doctor, of course, as we mentioned from the first time we talked about him. But I mean, this was a scholar of his day. Not only that, but he was a scholar of the Word of God. People knew that. People knew that. They're not going to debate him because they're not going to win. It'd do more damage than what it was worth. So they took John Clark and these other four men, they threw him in prison. And um, they waited for the time. Eventually the day came, they took John Clark down to the whipping post. Down to the whipping post. They tied him. They stripped him. And when they were about to beat him, a wealthy, educated man and learned stood looking up at it and said, "I," and I quote from him, he said, I cannot bear to see a scholar, a gentleman, and a reverend divine flogged. So he paid the fine. Dr. Clark, of course, tried to refuse, but the court received it, and so some things were going on in Rhode Island, and we won't talk about it in today's episode. We will talk about it in next week's episode, but some things were going on in Rhode Island. Somebody paid John Crandall's fine as well, and some bad things were happening in Rhode Island and Newport and some very bad things. We'll talk about it next week. And so John Clark and John Crandall at the urging of Obadiah Holmes, they rushed back to Rhode Island to try and handle some of the issues that had been arising. But Obadiah Holmes, well, he stayed in prison in Boston until September. But he wasn't alone. Loyal John Hazel chose, though his fine was paid, to stay with his great friend and influencer Holmes. Not Sherlock Holmes, Obadiah Holmes. As Silas with Paul, so Hazel stayed with Holmes. The Boston court thought it was ridiculous that a free man would stay in prison, but they didn't bother to have him removed. On September 5th, 1651, Holmes was taken out of his prison cell to be flogged for his beliefs. These are the words of Obadiah Holmes as he began 
to be led away from the prison cell. I quote from him. I betook myself to God, that I might communicate with him, commit myself to him, and beg strength from him. I was caused to pray earnestly unto the Lord that he would be pleased to give me a spirit of courage and boldness, a tongue to speak for him, and strength of body to suffer for his sake, and not to shrink or yield to the strokes or shed tears, lest the adversaries of the truth should thereupon blaspheme and be hardened, and the weak and feeble-hearted discouraged. And for this I besought the Lord earnestly. At length, God satisfied my spirit to give up as my soul, my body to him, and quietly leave the whole disposing of the matter to God. And when I heard the voice of the prison keeper come for me, even cheerfulness did come upon me, and taking my Bible in hand, I went along with him to the place of execution. If those courageous words don't move you, there's something wrong with your heart. Now, the whipping post of Boston was behind the old state house. It was under the shadow of it, really, at the corner of Devonshire and State Streets, which are still there in Boston. And when Obadiah Holmes was taken there to be flogged, he was sentenced to 10 less than sure death. You see, sure death was 40 lashes. If you got lashed 40 times, you were dead. He got sentenced to 30 lashes because he was a Baptist. That's it. That's all. He was a Baptist. 30 lashes. This was the same sentence they would give to rapists and counterfeiters. 30 lashes. The same sentence. All because he was a Baptist. Look it up. There was no other charge. Just he was a Baptist. He was a Baptist. He asked permission to speak to the people. It was denied. But while they stripped him and tied him to the post, he made a declaration of his faith in the Lord and his loyalty to the word of God. And once again, I continue from him. Listen to these words. And as the man began to lay the strokes upon my back, I said to the people, Though my flesh should fail and my spirit should fail, yet my God does not fail. So it pleased the Lord to come in and so fill my heart and tongue as a vessel full. And with an audible voice, I broke forth praying unto the Lord not to lay the sin to their charge and telling the people that now I found God did not fail me and that therefore now I should trust him forever who failed me not. For in truth, as the strokes fell upon me, I had such a spiritual manifestation of God's presence as the like thereof I have never had nor felt nor can with fleshly tongue express. When he had loosed me from the post, having joyfulness in my heart and cheerfulness in my countenance, as the spectators observed, I told the magistrates, you've struck me with roses, yet I pray God that it not be laid to your charge. There's two phrases in there that truly, truly touch my heart. Truly touched my heart. You've struck me with roses, yet I pray, God, that it not be laid to your charge. What a story of forgiveness. Would you be willing to forgive the man who has just beaten you mercilessly? Would you forgive him in an instant? And then the second one is, though my flesh should fail, my spirit should fail, yet my God 
does not fail and fail and telling the people now I found that God did not fail me and that therefore now I should trust him forever who failed me not. Here he is getting beaten and crying out, my God has not failed me. Do I have that same heart? Do I have that same courage? Would I follow God the same? I beg God that I would. Oh, I pray that I would. My desire is to do the same, not to get beaten necessarily, but to just follow God. Don't you desire the same? Although he was given strength of God to bear the beating, for weeks and weeks after that, Obadiah Holmes had to sleep and rest on his knees and on his elbow. He could not suffer his body to even touch the bed. He was a bruised, bleeding mass when the ordeal was over. And two men who were not Baptists just looking at it shook with him, shook hands with him rather, to express to them to him their appreciation of so noble a spirit. Those two men were arrested, they were fined, they were supposed to be flogged, but friends paid the fine and the court let them go. Thirteen others, thirteen others crying for the executionary beating to stop, they were fined for it. Obadiah Holmes closed the matter, he said, quote, Now thus it pleased the Father of mercies to dispose of the matter that my bonds and imprisonment have been no hindrance to the gospel. For before my return, some submitted to the Lord and were baptized, and divers were put upon the way of inquiry. He said, I handled it in a matter that it was not a hindrance to the gospel. Could we say that? Could we say that? Though God gave Holmes grace to endure, loyal John Hazel never made it back to Newport. Ten days after leaving Boston, he died from complications of his stay in prison. Each time I talk about him, tears come to my eye. He would have laid he would have made it if he had just left his friend. That's why he's called Loyal John Hazel. Would we be loyal? Would we be loyal? You can visit Boston today and see many of the historical landmarks. If you go down to the corner of the streets of Devonshire and State, you'll see many. You'll see the oldest public statehouse building of Boston is there. In front of it occurred the Boston Massacre, which precipitated the Revolutionary War. From its balcony was read the Declaration of Independence in 1776 by Colonel Thomas Crafts. It was built in 1713. But in the same spot was the old Boston Courthouse, were on the corner of it, it shadowed the whipping post that Holmes had suffered on. You'll see another tall building with a large, large bronze plaque that says, Estabrook and Company Investments since 1851. You'll see other plaques of famous building, but I think the greatest site, if you were to visit, if you were to visit Boston that you'll ever see, isn't necessarily that old state house, though it would be very neat to see. I think the most interesting sight you could ever see is really in the soil beneath the bloodstains of a Baptist who suffered for the cause of Christ. Within just a few blocks of that place, another great sight you could see if you could go back in history, a place where something happened on April 25th of 1855. Dwight Moody, the famous evangelist, worked in a shoe store. 
but he wasn't a famous evangelist at this time. He was working in a shoe store when his Sunday school teacher walked in. Out of a heart that desired to win somebody to the Lord, Sunday school teacher walked in said, When will you accept him? When will you accept my Jesus? And there, April 25th, 1855, Dwight Moody got saved. From his ministry, hundreds of thousands of souls got saved. Just a few feet. He got saved just a few feet from where a Baptist had stood up for his faith. I pose this question to you. Would D.L. Moody have ever happened if some Baptists and Christians of old were not willing to take a stand? Would it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't necessarily think so. But I don't know. Hmm. Are we willing to take a stand? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 and 14 say, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand. Christian, stand. Stand. You may not have to get beat. You may not have to get hung. But whatever God's word has in it, you stand upon it. Just stand. Be strong. Be committed. Be faithful. Be a witness. Be a light. Stand. Never quit standing. Never quit standing. Next week, we'll continue the story of Baptist history. Because there stood there that day, watching the beating of Obadiah Helms, there stood a man looking on in the shadows. He witnessed the beating of the vigilant Baptist. He watched the way with which Holmes had endured, and the words he spoke struck into the man's heart. It was a moment that would impact his life for eternity. He turned, he walked down the cobblestone street, and back to his home. God was doing something in his heart. Who is that man? Well, you'll have to come back next week to find out. But until then, my friend, keep looking up, keep standing, and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ.